HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Bob's Red Mill believes in baking, breakfast, and the pursuit of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today with Jim Leahy of Sullivan Street Bakery, and if you don't know what that is, you have not had bread in New York, real bread in New York, but you know, today is one of those kind of rainy, overcast, very windy days, and it reminds me of my younger days baking, uh, where the only adjustments I could make in the bakery were like opening the door or a window, because uh, humidity and weather really, you know, the environment affects a bread. Um, what kind of environment do you bake your bread in? Well, I think for the for the purposes of finding balance between the dough and the the baker, I, I find that eighty degrees is just warm enough for the bread and just comfortable enough for the kitchen worker. So we just try to keep everything at eighty. But you know, in the summertime, we're we're successful if the if the air conditioning doesn't break down. But sometimes in the winter, when it gets really cold, we have a hard time, you know, getting the temperature to stay warm. So we just adjust our dough temperatures by making the dough very hot, let's say. And then as the dough begins to cool down and temper to the room, which might be 65 degrees or 70, or sometimes even colder, like 62 degrees, um, on that on that kind of slide that, that downward trend of, of uh, cooling down or tempering, we end up with the right fermentation profile, let's say, within the desired amount of time, which in our case usually is about like two and a half to three hours after mixing the dough. So without having to do those adjustments, where in the world, what day, what season, maybe even what year would be the ideal time and place to bake a loaf of bread. Well, I, I think right now is quite pleasant. You know, it's not too hot, not too cold. Uh, 
Um, it's, uh, but I mean, I think, you know, any, any, any time of the year, I mean, I mean, obviously not during a heat wave in the middle of the summer, but you can do it and it, and definitely not when it's like 20 below zero, which occasionally happens, um, or, or five below. Um, but, um, but, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, the ideal temperature, I think, you know, it's, uh, obviously does ferment uh, at different rates. It's all about the rate of fermentation. So if the ambient temperature, for example, is your room temperature, your, amb- your ambient temperature is, say, 70 degrees, but it's 20 degrees outside, the temperature outside will have an, 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 an enormous impact on the rate at which the dough will ferment because the water inside the dough is affected by the cold. And this effect, this kind of transference of, of, uh, of energy or a loss of energy or, um, will take that fermentation rate, even if it's 70 and inside, and, and slow it down quite a bit, in, in which case someone who's a crafty baker or someone who's trying to kind of figure a way out around it might take a pan of hot water and put it in their oven with the oven off and then put the dough to ferment, for example, in that warm, humid environment to compensate for that. Or one might, knowing how things ferment, one might start a couple of hours earlier and plan for more floor time anticipating that the rate you know that that yeasts at their at the ideal temperature will replicate every 20 to 25 minutes so there's exponential growth uh you know and you could say uh, every 20 to 25 minutes and then bacteria produce I, i i believe but slightly faster um, so there's exponential growth there as well if you're using, for example, sourdough. Um, but, you know, ideally, you know, dough ferments best at, at temperatures that are good for beer and wine, for fermenting beer and wine. So before you knew all this, had those hacks, you were an art student, a sculptor in Rome. And do you remember that first bite, that pizzeria Bianca, the temperature that day, the texture yeah, of the dough? I think I remember my fir- my. Fir- first memory of bread might have been Rosette at the at the pension that I was staying in on Via Auralia on the Aurelian Way outside of like near the Vatican um, but um, and it probably wasn't that memorable but I do remember eventually eating the like the the kind of generic felonies that were everywhere the generic kind of pane di comune the normal bread that people ate and then having Nutella. And then that was, there was kind of a, a magic with the Nutella and the, uh, and the mouthfeel of the crumb and the, and the way the dough was fermented. I mean, I, I, you know, I recently returned from Rome and I can honestly say uniformly, almost everywhere I've gone, went, the bread is very mediocre. <laughs> I could say the bread sucks, I could also say that in Italy, there's a crisis right now, a bread crisis, where no one wants to bake the bread. 
And the few people that do want to bake the bread kind of, I don't know, like in an Italian fashion, a Mussolini-like fashion, strut around all pompous and shit. And it might not be as good as they think it is. Um, but, you know, but the culture for bread is still there, which gives me hope. The desire for the bread is still there. It's just that there's kind of like this uh, 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 vacating of, of knowledge and, like, and people just want things right away. And people are just, maybe it's, maybe it's the effect, the subtle effect or the not-so-subtle effect of uh, where people's attention is. It's more interesting to photograph bread than to actually bake it and eat it. It's more interesting for a baker to post a picture online of their loaf of bread or themselves baking a loaf of bread because they get to check how many likes they got versus the actual reality of baking and eating the bread and sharing the bread. Well, that, I mean, you know, you're, sharing, you're part of that reality, though. You are an Italian baker in New York making Italian bread. I, I am a, a, a Jewish baker. <laughs> Uh, and not, no, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm a Jewish baker. I'm a, uh, I'm a, I am a, an American baker baking bread in New York, inspired by bakers that I had met in Italy, and to some degree fueled by my fantasy and my romanticism and my imagination as a, as a you know impressionable young man, you know, a, a 22 year old visiting Italy for the first time and seeing a culture that was kind of known to me but completely unknown. Um, and a, a cuisine and food, I mean, you know, I, the desire for the food and for food was, was in me. I just didn't have in my life that much contact with food other than being an art student at School of Visual Arts and falling in love with, for example, Egy the Egyptian version of of Middle Eastern dishes, you know, hummus, falafel, baba ganoush, and all that, all that, because I was living at the time in Jersey City, on the western slope of Jersey City, in in, in predominantly a um, uh, Egyptian Indian neighborhood. So I would I would have like that kind of exposure to, to food. My concept or notion of Italian food wasn't really kind of didn't really kind of form until I went and visited when I was uh, with a, a group of students from Stony Brook University for, uh, you know, language and art experience. But then again, you know, uh, Italian bread, what was your concept of it here? I, I, I... Well, I mean, just like, the, you know, the, the bread that you see in, in every deli and bodega that's in the white paper bag best used by... With the 99 cents, like, you know, all printed out, 99 cents with the nutritional, you know, usually like a logo that's kind of like, like yellow and red or something or something green and white, green, white and red or something to kind of like get your attention. Um, you, you know what I'm talking about. Like that's fluffy kind of, you know, all purpose, like fucking hero bread, uh, you know, kind of like. Dry, insipid, bland. Uh, I like how the characteristics start start going down, down. The, well, the, the, you know, it is, crescendo, but, but, and then... but but again, but it but it also expresses something at its core. Even 
the bad, quote unquote, bad thing at its core expresses some deeper value. If, if one wants to look at it that way, that it's, it's aspirational, you know, so those bags, that price, the, that kind of marketing from the 1940s or 50s is, you know, aspirational. It's, it's about, you know, like Wonder Bread and all the, the you know, 99.9% of the market share of all the bread that he, Americans eat are produced in very large factories, not in little bakeries like my own uh, or Roberta's or She-Wolf's or, you know. But they're made in these giant factories and there's a, a reason for it the bread that you get at the supermarket is like aspirations fulfilled in the sense that you know the bread that the the richest people were eating 300 years ago were breads that had all sorts of shit added to them milk and lard and butter and honey and you know because the wealthier classes could afford these additives, and the benefit to the loaf of bread was evident. It rose bigger. It was fluffier. It was easier to eat with your rotten teeth. You know what I mean? It kept for, for, for more days than did the brown bread or the poorer bread that, that the masses would eat. You know, it's like, you know, in this last trip that I made to Italy, I, I realized, you know, the theme of poverty and and how poor Italians are in, in terms of aspiration. When you look at a even a, a you know, our country is a nation of immigrants and people come here and oftentimes the story the the storyline goes that we're poor when we get here and that you know by your own initiative and your own gumption you can you know stake your claim and you know go go out west and find gold. But at the, at the reality is, that, again, it's aspirational. It doesn't necessarily happen. It might happen to a few, but, you know. And returning back to the story of bread, you know, what we look at as crappy industrial bread, um, if you could present that crappy industrial bread to human beings from 500 years ago, they would think it's the most amazing, <laughs> sophisticated product in the world. You know, but I, I, th- I think, I think, and that, you know, what we view as, oh, it's all natural and organic and it's stone ground and it, like came from like the Carolinas or like, you know, like upstate or something like that. And I'm like in Williamsburg and I live in a loft with like 20, 20 friends and five cats and 30 dogs. And, but I'm saying, you know, that's aspirational too. It's just a different aspiration, you know, but it's, it's still as- aspirational. One kind of, I think, is, is, like uber nostalgic maybe for a simpler time before Instagram. And the other one was, was looking at bread as kind of like, especially soft, squishy bread that had lots of things in it that was really clean, really white, white, because if you remove the brand, it was, it was obvious that you could get certain qualities out of the, out of the bread that you couldn't get if you leave all the, 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 the wheat berry in, in the mix, in the mill, um, that if you had this dough that had like butter or lard or milk or what have you, um, 
it would make a bread that was easier to eat with your rotten teeth because, you know, humans were notoriously, at least occidental human, humans, humans were just notoriously, we've, we've suffered from dental problems for quite a long time. I am no ex, ex, exclusion. You know, it, but it makes me wonder what people thought of you. In, in 1994, opening up on Sullivan Street, you were catering to what class? Because you we, had- were, we, were, we were the bakery for everyone. Yeah. For all classes, we gave cops and firefighters uh, wholesale prices on breads and school teachers as well. A, a practice which we still continue to this day um, for the reason that they don't get paid that much money and we, we have to, we have an, I have an obligation to try in my own small way to increase the market, if you will, for our practice, for our, the thing that we do. So in order to increase the market, we have to kind of try to wean people away from what they would normally get. I mean, firefighters would, are the one exception because they're, you know, cl- they're closeted gourmands. They just like to cook. <laughs> oh, a I bunch get, of boys yeah. like to hang out together and I grill. I get like their- half a dozen firemen grilling books every spring. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, uh, you know, and they like to, they like to eat. They're like, you know, um, uh, and, uh, and then with, you know, a lot of police officers, you know, we, we would get a lot of police officers that were of Italian heritage. Uh, but, but that kind of also just kind of gets, you know, uh, you know, uh, people bring their friends and their colleagues. And then all of a sudden people who never tried our, you know, potato pizza or our pizza Bianca are all of a sudden fans. And, and, you know, um, I think it's important to try to expand the market and try to get more people eating it again to, to perhaps my my aspirations my aspirations uh, to maybe change that that uh, our market share from 0.1 percent to maybe a percent you know because again the vast majority of all the bread that you eat in all the supermarkets and it doesn't matter what the name of the supermarket is and it doesn't matter if they have an in-house scratch baking program there's there's an industrial element to it you know, I have nothing against industrial or industry. Industry is amazing. You and I wouldn't be here right now if it wasn't for all that industry. But, you know, there is aspiration for knowing where your grains come from, whether your grains were sprayed with glyphosate or other noxious chemicals, um, which in the 70s were considered... Miracle, miracle, uh, uh, miracle science, if you will, and the Green Revolution. But, you know, 40 years later, we realize that it's kind of eroding our, our, our health. That maybe the soft and squishy stuff wasn't so good Chipping. for us. <laughs> well, you know, well, I know that, you know, I was reading years ago when I was obsessed about glyphosate usage in wheat in America, looking at the big market, not the smaller uh, mills and growers like upstate and in the Carolinas or all across the country because you do have this incredible movement now. Um, I was looking at stats, USDA stats, when they had them available. Of course, this current administration doesn't want anyone to read stats. Uh, like, And we, we have to assume that the stats that are coming out of our government perhaps are fake news. Um, but at one point in time when our, you know, when 
bureaucrats who had a, a mind for regulation and trying to protect uh, the well-being of our country uh, put st statistics out. I think it was like 85% in 2012 of all spring wheat, which is like, I think, 80% of the wheat consumed in America, is, had glyphosate residual residues on it and is, was sprayed with glyphosate two weeks prior to harvest as a, as a matter of course, not as a, it needed to be done. They just do it because they want to improve the yield, the moisture content, because you no know, glyphosate, apart from being a, a very powerful herbicide, uh, is also a desiccant and increases the speed with which wheat berries dry up on, on the, uh, on the shaft of the plant and, uh, and, and then kind of improves the quantitative yield, you could say. The moisture content of the wheat is better. Therefore, the, on, for the commodity system, it's better wheat. It doesn't mean that, that, you know, again, like, you know, sometimes studies take a very long time. You know, asbestos was not uh, a pernicious mineral quite a long period of time, and then it came out that asbestos was actually the cause of a whole host of, of illnesses, you know? Well, I mean, luckily we've had, what, now 23 years of Jim Leahy, and have seen that effect on not just bread and Italian bread, but on the culture of wheat and the culture of eating here in New York and around the country. And on that, we're going to take a quick break and move away from the soft and squishy stuff okay. and start talking well, I love about it. I could talk about the soft <laughs> and squishy stuff all day. Because to me, the, the, the aspirational thing is, I think, what's most interesting. Because at the end of the day, it's like, I, like five years ago, I was thinking good, good bread is back, bad bread is back. Because there was this trend where like really crappy additive addled bread was kind of fashionable again um but i think that's kind of that that's like everything else in this fast moving fast moving uh uh world of ours it's kind of over and on that we'll be right back Bob Moore is the founder of Bob's Red Mill, the top quality supplier of grains, flowers, and general nutritional goodness from Oregon. He's talking to us about their signature millstones, a very specific way of making whole grain flour. So what's the secret, Bob? Follow me to the mill room. Well, these are just like the millstones that the Romans used to grind their grains. In fact, these stones came from the same quarry near Paris, France, where the Romans got their stones. The company that makes our millstones pulls their quartz from the same quarry, and they make mills for us that are just wonderful. Bob explains how the millstones grind much slower and at cooler temperatures than modern steel rollers. The process keeps the grains cool, preserving the flavor and nutrition. Look at what they produce. I love how they keep things simple and just right. All the nutrition is there, just like nature intended. 
After almost 40 years in the milling business, they're serving up over 400 organic, gluten-free, and whole grain foods right here from the mill in Oregon, sending them off to destinations around the world. We think we can make a difference by sticking to the traditional way of stone milling. And so, that's what we're doing. To learn more about Bob's Red Mill and their mission to bring good food for all, visit bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Hey, and welcome back to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today with Jim Leahy of Sullivan Street Bakery. And we have some bread that we're going to break into because before we were talking about soft and squishy and you no know, for the royals and they had no teeth and had trouble well, chewing. Well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that in a... Aspirational. Yeah, it's <laughs> aspirational. I mean, uh, it's like fashion. It's like, remember, you know, uh, you know star belly sneeches? No. Not at all. The Sneetches, the Dr. Seuss story about stars like ours. You know, the, 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 you know it's, it's aspirational. I mean, you either, gotta, you either have a star or you don't have a star. And if, and if you have a star, uh, then the people who don't have a star want a star. Then if the people who don't have a star put a star in them, then the people who had stars want to take them off. Well, you know, when I don't have your bread, I want your bread. Is that similar? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, and so we, we have a couple examples because you have this great new book. It's your third book, right? Yes. My Bread, My Pizza, and now Sullivan Street Baking Company. I should have named it, I should, I should have named it My Sullivan Street Bakery. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, Just to a, keep them alphabetical. Yeah, I know. That's true. But, but this book... Gives you some of those classics that you were talking about, preserving the, these Italian traditions that are seemingly, um, you know, kind of fading away, not only in Italy, but certainly in the U.S. So what breads do we have and, and why do you hope people not only eat these, but bake these at home? Well, I mean, it's, it's really good to know, uh, apart from the gratification you get from making your own food um, and knowing what's in it, um, obviously, when we get bread from like the industrial supply chain oftentimes i'm not saying that it's bad i mean it's just oftentimes you just don't know um you know much about it just like when we go to the supermarket and we buy you know packaged meats and stuff um that came from like huge feedlots in the virginias or the midwest or somewhere um in the same way that you know that most spring wheat, um, and there are some mills that are kind of more um, behind that uh, high yield variety of wheat, high yield, high performance variety of wheat in a lot of the products that they make. I won't mention them because I don't want to be, I don't want repercussions blacklisted, if you will, or attacked. Um, um, because at the end of the day, these these large industrial uh, concerns do kind of, um, um, yeah, take it personally. It's like Harvey Weinstein, um, if you if you speak bad about them. But um, I mean, I could name a few right now. Oh no, no, we'll, we'll keep you on the. Good I don't want. I don't yeah. want. I don't want to. Hurt, I don't want to hurt your uh, your your radio station too. So, um, but you know, uh, actually, I don't think you actually have a a, a sponsor of the of the. I, well, we'll talk. After. Yeah, we'll talk. After. <laughs> so. Um, but I, I think that that's part of it. I think that, you know, understanding the language of bread and understanding how to make and how to deal with the different phases and processes of, of making, you know, from the, 
from choosing your ingredients to making your dough to um, allowing the dough to you know get get to the right degree of ripeness per the type per your aspirations per your desired end result um, and then um, how to handle the dough how to cook the dough and then of course you know enjoyment is something that you know is very fleeting and fast so which which of your breads do you still enjoy i i have to say my favorite bread to make is pizza bianca as like it, to actually execute the actual act of making the bread my favorite bread to eat is anything that that is naturally fermented or uses natural fermentation uh for fl- flavor profile uh i despise i fucking loathe rye rye flour and rye bread I, th- I think it's fucking garbage. This is me, personally. I hate it with with a passion. However, I understand that there are a lot of people in Scandinavian countries and Northern European countries that like it. Well, and, we can talk. And I accept them. And I accept them. I don't have you know. We can actually dine at the same table together. I just won't eat their bread. Or it, that might be a condition of flour too. I, I know that rye flour in the U.S. versus that in. Austria. Uh, no, I used very, to. Very there was different. a period of time that I used to enjoy rye flour, but but the longer I bake bread, and the longer I've been around wheat, I've developed an allergy to rye flour. Where like if I'm anywhere near rye flour, it's like being near a cat. I just get like oh, so it's as, not it's asthmatic, and if I even if I eat it, I feel like shit afterwards. I thought you were using that as a euphemism, and allergy was just outrage. Well, I mean, <laughs> it, well, I mean. Yeah, I'm expressing to you my visceral feeling about rye flour, not my my mental. Uh, you know, a lot of you know, if I had been raised on rye flour my whole life, and maybe there's a cure for me. I just need to eat a little bit of rye rye bread every day. But I just know that if I I I, I if I I made rye bread for a chef uh, for food and wine last I guess two weeks ago, and you know I. I had to take a Benadryl afterwards. It's not fun. You but know. you're not going to find rye in Lazio, Puglia, um, Tuscany. No, but you'll find rye up in, in the north, like in Bol- Bolzano. And, uh, you know, there's there's a, definitely a, a, a prevalence of, uh, of rye baking in northern, you know, in the, toward Austria and stuff where that tradition is still alive. Um, and I'm not, like, you know, I'm militantly against rye flour. I just don't like it, you know. I like... I like Stanley Ginsberg. He's really nice. <laughs> and he, all he likes to eat is rye flour. We're friends. So by association. Yeah. yeah. So what, what do we hold in your hand right well, now? Well, I, I, I made a, a, a large batch of one of the recipes from the cookbook of our multi-granny uh, recipe because I, I do love grains. I love whole grains. So this is basically like um, a sourdough uh, multi-grain bread. Um, this is a kneaded version. I think in the cookbook, we have a no-knead version that that gets, I think, three or four folds. And um, But this is a, one of my favorite breads to eat because it's extremely nourishing with sunflower seeds and oats and millet and, and uh, sesame and flax and, uh, uh, and, a, and a whole host of other other. Lovely ingredients. See, I've always loved how textural your breads are, uh, visually too, because like the sesamo bread that you make, mm-hmm. the sesame bread, uh, I think there are more sesame seeds per capita on that bread than any other bread I've ever seen. So 
texture is very much a part of how you bake. Yeah. I, I think that mouthfeel is extremely important. I mean, if you break down why bread is good or why food is good, you could you could say it's visually appealing or not. Um, you could eat something and talk about the texture, the mouthfeel, the f- all the different flavors from the moment you bite into it to the flavor, the retro flavors that you get as you chew on something for a while. Sometimes uh, flavors come out as we eat things, obviously. Uh, um, the retro gusto, as they say in Italian. Um, I think mouthfeel has a lot to do with bread. I think ultimately what aspirationally, aspirationally, um, the pleasure of eating bread or the pleasure of making bread and that bread, if we make it, is something pleasing to to us. I'm not talking about master baking, but I'm talking about making bread that gives the person eating it pleasure. Like, have you ever had those breads that are like, you know, artisan breads and like you try to eat them and then like your gums are all fucking shredded and it's like they're really tough and chewy and they got like maybe one too many sets of blisters. Like, you know, like the, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. And in a sense, it's almost like for the sake of a, an appearance or a, or, a, uh, uh, or a certain look, look, um, the actual, like, you know, never judge a loaf of bread solely from the outside. You have to eat it. You have to try it, you know. You have to, and it, and it should give pleasure at the end of the day. The food should give pleasure. Otherwise, you won't you won't come back to it. Well, I mean, nothing would pleasure me more than trying some of your bread oh, well, at well, the let's, moment. Let's, let's, let's cut into this loaf of bread and see what we get, okay? Plus the sound effects. I, I've been waiting for this. Because I think you also experience bread, you know, uh, you know, via sound as well. I mean... That's the sound <laughs> of the knife. Working on the pain. That's sorry. That's a. Thank you, sir. The sound of the knife working on the pain. So I, I've seen a lot of you know photos and videos, and you are doing exactly what I was just going to bring up: smelling the bread. Is there a way to engage with the bread to to kind of you know smell it and look at it and evaluate it? Yeah, I mean, again, if you your five point uh, bread analysis. Flavor, uh, appearance, volume, uh, all the things that go into appearance, uh, mouthfeel, texture, flavor, color, all these, all these things uh, kind of add up to, you know, uh, bread is a, 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 a perfect, you know, um, a manifestation of the, the you know, the, 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 the whole being greater than the sum of the parts, you know, that, that, that ultimately that's what bread is it's one of these things that humans have been doing before written history uh you know it's it's deep within our i think it, within our dna well i mean the parts of this bread that impressed me the most aren't just you know uh the whole package like you were saying but the roastiness you get out of these grains mm-hmm. internally are just i don't think i've had many other breads like this well thank you i mean i don't know if it's to our particular sourdough that we use I mean, this bread has a certain kind of nuttiness and earthiness from the the grains because the grains begin to ferment a little bit before they get um, before they get added to the dough. So, 
And then there's also a lot of enzymatic activity that takes place with, like when you make a multigrain bread, for example. I hope the, the, the sound of me chewing is not making it on the microphone. It's fine. The, the pleasure of myself. The, the pleasure of pleasure. me chewing pleasure. is more than enough. Pleasure. I, I'm totally fine with that. Okay. But and we I, have jam here, yeah. too, which is good. But are, are you a bread purist in, in the sense that do you eat only bread? Do you eat it toast with a little bit of butter? Because I know I'm, in the book you have, aside from pizza and you know these egg sandwiches, uh, a whole bunch of sandwiches like chickpea panelles and yeah we have like you know some stuff from you know kind of the the book is for the bread baker is a uh, uh a lot of different recipes with a lot of different approaches some recipes are the same bread let's say by name but two completely different approaches um and some doughs get as little time as a half an hour to ferment like the Hamilton buns that we make. I love that story. Oh, no, it, and it's, and it, and it, yeah, but that's kind of revolutionary. You yeah. don't have to wait 24 hours for a, a, a dough that's enjoyable, but maybe like an hour. Yeah, you but know? you can wait forever to get a ticket to the show Hamilton. Yeah, that's true. Well, um, But what, what are the Hamilton buns? What make them revolutionary? And um, well, what's I mean, so good about the hamwiches? Well, I mean, the hamwiches are just like, you know, you know, uh, a whole wheat bun with... Uh, you know, I mean, I ended up putting like Irish butter on it because it's like uh, I, I'm a big fan of uh, I'm a big fan of Irish butter for uh, or, you know, I'm a, of, of good butters, of quality butters. Um, but um, it's just a very easy bread to make. That's the idea. It's it's, you know, for I think for it, if the process of making bread is daunting or difficult what it, you know if and also again it's the, the time thing as well i mean it, i find it to be the ideal bun for like a sandwich or a hamburger or um you know we only deal with one form but it could be used for a ha- uh, for a hot dog bun or a or a lobster roll bun um you know it just the idea of the book though is to try to, to deepen people's understanding of the bread baking process and also engage in that language of bread so that people will borrow from, like, people will hybridize recipes and hybridize procedures. Um, it's one of the, the things that is true about bread, and if you look at bread throughout the world, um, it's, it is mutable in its nature, which makes it hard to pin down. Um, it's fungible. I love the word fungible, mutable. Um, in that you know it's it's a powder and you can add eggs to it you can add milk to it and you can add dried fruit and all these different things you can ferment it at high temperatures low temperatures refrigerator you know what I mean and I think on one level with with this book we're trying to to sort of open it up open the Pandora's box up so that people who for example do sourdough or want to learn more about using uh, a sourdough. Uh, have other ways, other avenues to explore the the craft of baking. Um, but the vehicles aren't new. Uh, they aren't new in the sense that you you are going back to Puglia and Tuscany and Lazio mm-hmm. and baking those breads. And but but what's not intimidating about about that? I see the loaf you have in front of you. I mean it. It's almost like an Italian miche in, in its size. Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of bread is that? And why do you think people can? 
bake this and replicate it. Well, this is again, it's a it's a it's a ratio between whole wheat and white flour. We call it the name of the dough is sare, which is this fictitious name that means absolutely nothing, um, because that's what you do. You make you name things. And if you make something long enough and it develops traction, then the, ma- the name has a meaning. And I can, I can tell you where the name came from, but that's like my little, my little secret. Um, uh, I, think, um, you know, I think baking is one of these things that is... There are traditional breads, for example, that are made. I, I never learned to make Pugliese bread by going to a bakery in Puglia I made Pugliese bread by talking, talking, talking with, speaking with, listening to um, bakers from Puglia talk about nostalgically the bread that they made in their childhood, you know, when they were teenagers and they would work at a, they're the, the son of a baker in Bari or in Altamora or some city, Lecce, whatever. And now they're living in Rome because there's not enough work for bakers down there. And this is like 30 years ago, and or 25 years ago, and they're making Roman-style bread. I would think that their formative experiences were, in, in, were influencing what they were doing at that time. It's only natural. You know, maybe the, a little bit of the finish of the bread. You know, I mean, I ask any chef... You know, all cooks bring in their formative experiences, and that's their baggage, their knowledge. It could be either a, a a positive thing, maybe, or a negative thing. It just is. It just exists. You know, and um, and they would talk about it and describe it in such detail that for me, I I internalized it. So when I came back to actually at the time Williamsburg, nineteen ninety one, ninety two, I began baking this idea of Pugliese bread out of my kitchen at home, um, again, aspiring to try to make this bread that was ideal, the ideal vehicle for Nutella, because that's all I wanted. I just wanted Nutella. I wanted Nutella on this crusty bread with these big holes in it. I don't think we could have end at a better spot because the cycle is almost complete. Yeah. But I, I'm just so glad that the name Jim Leahy gives a good name to Italian bread. Well, thank you. And it's been a real pleasure to be on your show. And it's everyone an honor to come here. Thank you so much. And everyone should get out to Sullivan Street Baking, which is uh, headquartered in Hell's Kitchen, but also buy all three of these yeah. books. Yeah. And yeah, and the, and the new book is a lot of fun. I mean, it's really, again, like for people that have read my bread and my pizza and then want to really deepen their knowledge and understanding, you make mistakes, fail, but aspire, you know? And then there's a lot, of, like a lot of technique in the book that's kind of like hidden. You won't even realize it. And if you want to hear more of Jim and his uh, waxing poetics about bread, definitely check out Modernist Breadcrumbs, our new podcast on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Episode three is being released tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. A big thank you to Bob's Red Mill for sponsoring Music by Cookies and David Tatashore Engineering. Hope to have you back here next Tuesday at three. Cheers.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.